the term black box has evolved in the music industry. In the past, it has referred to money generated by unclaimed artist royalties, and what happens to the money in the black box has always been a source of much discussion. But what constitutes the black box today, which we can perhaps better define as undistributed and undistributable money, presents challenges specific to this moment in history. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk about the new black box and what we can do about it. It's all coming up on the future of what. Support for the future of what comes from SoundExchange, which provides royalty solutions and advocacy to ensure all music creators are paid what they are owed. You're listening to the future of what? I'm talking to John Simpson of American University. John, welcome to the future of what? Thanks. Happy to be here. I'm happy to have you. So today, I wanted to talk to you about this issue of unclaimed royalties, because this is quite a complicated subject. It's also often referred to as the black box, Uh which makes it sound very sinister. I know, very sinister. (laughs) Black box is actually a bad name that has grown up over the years, and probably for good reason. People had various reasons why they wanted that money to essentially be undistributed. Right. But I think it's important to start out by differentiating between undistributed money and undistributable money. And I'm not even sure if undistributable is a word because every time I write it, I get a little (laughs) red line under it. You know, that Microsoft thing that annoys you like, "Uh oh, I got to fix this. But every collecting society will have money that flows through it that's undistributed at a particular point in time. Either they're processing it, it's, you know, it's come in, we have some data, but we don't have all the data. You know, we need to figure out how to split it up if it's, let's say, a featured performer's share of money. And that gets into some really fascinating and difficult questions on who featured performers are on recordings. And, you know, I think a lot of people think, oh, that's simple, but it's really quite complicated. And how they share the money. You know, is it an even share in the Dave Matthews band? Do all the members share it equally or does Dave get more? In Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, you know, sometimes he'll do solo records where it's just Bruce Springsteen and then we don't have the E Street Band as featured performers. But, you know, all of those questions are really quite fascinating, but there are also things that you have to work through to take your undistributed money and then distribute it. Obviously, the goal of every collecting society should be distribute all their money, but clearly there's times when they run into difficulty. Right. Now, what I like about our interaction on this over email is that I think you have such a clear way of explaining because, you know, like you said, black box has a very negative connotation. There's the implication that people are keeping money away from artists and labels for, you know, nefarious purposes. But I think it's really important to talk about why some royalties are unclaimed. Sure. So, yeah, go for it. And so let me, I like to break them into different buckets. And the first bucket is money that shows up from somebody using music 
that comes with no data at all. And you can say, well, how does that happen? <laughs> and, you know, it shouldn't because the law says you're supposed to provide data along with your money so that we can fairly pay the people whose music was used or whose recordings were used. Because at SoundExchange, we were looking at recording artists and record labels or copyright owners really more than labels. Obviously, ASCAP and BMI are looking at songwriters and music publishers, but you will from time to time have a service. They send you over money. And then when you ask for the data, they said, oh, we don't have it. Right. Now, the first and major time that that happened with SoundExchange, it was very understandable. And that was October of 1998. For the very first time, webcasters had to start paying royalties. And they were supposed to tell us who they were playing. But there was no rate set for how much they were supposed to pay us. Mm. The rate didn't get set until 2002, wow. four years later. Yeah. Yeah. Almost four years, a little under four years. So all of a sudden, the big streamers of the day, AOL, Microsoft, and Yahoo, and that's where most of the money was being made. A lot of the smaller streaming services that, oh, we can't afford these rates that we're now set. We're going to go out of business. And we did have a, a separate proceeding with some of the smaller streamers to set up a special category for them, the Small Webcaster Settlement Act. But the big streamers, this is where we were really quite stunned, was they came in and said, well, here's your money, but we didn't keep any data. <laughs> and it was like, what? You didn't keep any data? So here we had this pile of money and no data. So what were we going to do? So the way the way the regulations with SoundExchange worked is we went to the copyright office and said, look, we have this money, we have no data. Here's what we think would be a good proxy to distribute that money. And again, anytime you don't have the actual data, it's rough justice, whatever you do. Right. What we did was we looked at other services that were online that were streaming and said, well, maybe what they're streaming, and we have this data, would be good examples for what was probably being streamed on these services. No way that we would ever really know, but that's what we decided to do. We came up with a proxy, sent it to the copyright office, had them put it out for comment within the larger music community. I'm guessing that 99% of everybody ignores that and doesn't respond. And <laughs> right. there might be a few, you know, a handful of people who actually read these things and, oh my goodness, you know, but, you know, eventually our proxy was approved and we distributed the money based on that proxy. It was the fairest thing we could do at that time. Right. So sometimes you'll get money without any data and you know you got to come up with some sort of a proxy for that distribution. Sometimes you get money and data and some of the data is really bad. <laughs> and you know I mean for example one of my favorites was this was from Sirius XM and it happened so long ago that I think I can tell the tale without repercussions at this point but right. there was a band that was owed over a million dollars. I'd never heard of this band. I said, wait, how could there be a band that I've never heard of owed a million dollars? It just can't be. And the band was called Stop Set. And I was just like, huh. And it turns out that Stop Set is a radio term for some sort of a announcement or bumper that they play at the end of the set. Stop Set. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> so they were putting that in their listings. And of course, we saw it and didn't realize that's just some sort of a notation for them. It was listed as if it was a regular track. Right. Right. That's hilarious. So all of a sudden, you know, there was a million dollars that was allocated to that track. And then, of course, we had to go back. And, you know, that was the easy fix because it, you knew all the other tracks. All you had to do was sprinkle that money back over the other ones. But you have stuff like that that happens. Oh, my God. And then you do have bad data where literally you can't figure out from what they sent you who the artist is, 
A great example, a lot of people used Gracenote back in the early days to populate their databases. They'd stick a CD in the computer and Gracenote would populate, oh, here are all the tracks, you know, song titles, whatever. And frequently the artists would be listed as various artists. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I used to jokingly say when I left Sound Exchange, I was going to start a band called Various Artists. <laughs> and collect all on that money. Label, <laughs> on Label Unknown. <laughs> and the, the, the song was going to be called Bonus Track. And I was going to make a fortune. Right? <laughs> because every database has bonus track. That was a trend for a while. Remember where you put the secret extra track on? It yep. was called Bonus Track. Yep. And, you know, you didn't have the title. Various artists always happens on soundtracks, on compilations of all sorts. And unfortunately, you either have to have the people power to go in and retrofit that. And you can. I mean, if you, you know, if you get the City of Angels soundtrack, oh, it's the Goo Goo Dolls or whoever it might be that's on that soundtrack. But, you know, it's a lot of painstaking work. Now, that work is worth it when those tracks are worth, you know, $500. Is it worth it when those tracks are worth $8 or $4? Or 50 cents, yeah. Or Exactly, or even three cents, especially when each play is worth six-tenths of a penny. Exactly. A lot of misspellings, and some of the misspellings aren't really misspellings. I usually use one of my favorite African guitar players only because of his name. He's Rigo Star. Oh God! Rigoberto so is his real name, but he goes, goes by Rigo Star. And I, <laughs> you, yeah, he was owed some money, and I was immediately, hey, we have a typo for Ringo. Let's send this money to Ringo. And you know, unfortunately for me, I said, wait, let's just check real quick. Right. And sure enough, we found this guy, and it was like, oh no, it's his money. Uh, you know, most people probably would have just sent it to Ringo. Right. <laughs> so you know, you have you have data issues, some of which are real, some of which are imagined. We also get corrupted. Like, I have a friend who always brings up live recordings, you know, because there's a ton of live music now being played on Sirius XM, which generates a lot of money. But the people who played on that live recording may be different than the people who played on the studio recording. Yeah. And is that distinction being made when we're processing and paying? So there's all sorts of reasons why, when we try to figure out who to pay, it's not always as easy as it should be. Right. Absolutely. So, and then you have people who don't come and claim their money once you figured out, oh, you know, this money is supposed to go to James Moon for this recording. And you look online, there's no jamesmoon.com. You Google it, you can't find it. You look everywhere you can to try to find this artist and they never come forward. Right. I've actually had experiences where certain values got to a certain point. I would actually make phone calls trying to distribute money because it was that important to me. And so I, you know, I remember calling somebody up and discovering as we were talking that they had several different labels they released under and several different names and that they were owed close to $17,000. Right. And at the end of the phone call, they just looked at me, you know, I'm guessing they're looking at me over the phone and going, <laughs> I could never have earned this much money. And I'm like, what? And they said, no, this can't be me. And I said, no, no, it's you. I'm like, you know, we get these reports and these are the reports of use that we've got. This is your money. And they said, that can't be me. And they hung up. (laughs) And I was just like flabbergasted, like, wait a minute, you know, you're turning down this money because you don't think you earned it. Wow. That was, you know, kind of interesting. I had lots of other artists who said, I'll take that money. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) no doubt, no doubt. But you, you do have people who never come forward. Right. For whatever reason. For whatever reason. And, you know, some of it may be educational, that we need to do a better job of educating our artists and songwriter communities, our creative communities about these rights so that they know that when they get these 
calls from an ASCAP or a BMI or a sound exchange that they're actually legitimate. Right. You know, I mean, when we launched in 2001, I think it was the dawn of the internet and you kept getting those notifications about the lottery you'd won in the Netherlands or the money in Africa that was being held by some long distant relative. And all you had to do is give them your bank account. Right. So, you know, those kind of scams certainly hurt our pickup in the early days. Even when you'd point people to our board and say, look, you know, we have all these pretty substantial people on the board. You should trust us kind of thing. And they, they just, you know, didn't. Right. So when people don't claim, I mean, what, what are you going to do? Well, you can't force somebody to claim. I mean, you absolutely can't. You can't. Yeah. You can't take them and make put their fingers on the keyboard and force them to sign up for SoundExchange or exactly. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that it just is what it is. And then the last bucket that you talk about is is when there are royalties that are actually just in dispute. And that happens a lot. SoundExchange has worked really hard over the years to create a really good comprehensive resolution system, you know, conflict resolution system so that the parties can hash it out and figure it out. And, you know, a lot of times conflicts like that are, are just accidental, you know. Sure, yeah. Label X thinks that they own this album and they don't or whatever. Right. I mean, yeah, the, we, there's plenty of cases where the service reporting the data was reporting the marketing label as opposed to the actual owner. Sure. Or the distribution label mm-hmm. as opposed to the owner. Yeah, those things happen all the time. And I agree with you. Sound Exchange has gone to great lengths to, A, make it very transparent, let you claim things. If there's a dispute, the money gets put in escrow until people can resolve their disputes. And I think that's also important to understand that sometimes undistributed money, because that's distributable money at some point, it's undistributed right now, but it will be distributed once that dispute is resolved. And sometimes those disputes can linger on for five years, six years. There's nothing more (laughs) agonizing than when you have a legacy band that's earned a bunch of money and then the former members of the band, you know, who had a bitter divorce, whatever, or just were sick of each other after 40 years on the road, and they can't agree on how to split up the money. Right, right. And so you're sitting there holding it in escrow. Yeah. Oh, gosh. And it, it almost becomes weaponized. Yeah. And, and I can it's see sad. That. It's really sad. Yeah. So there's some money that is distributable, but not being distributed for various reasons, which you've put forward. And then there's some money that's undistributable because... You just lack the data. You literally lack the data. Or that or the person hasn't come forward to claim. Right. What's interesting is is sort of what collecting societies around the world do with this money because you have talked about it and many other people have talked about the fact that a lot of other countries have cultural funds. Yep. They take that unclaimable money or that undistributable money and they actually put it sort of back into the ecosystem. Yeah. You know, I think good case that can be made is, you know, that, hey, if we can't really distribute this money, we have two choices. We can either give everybody else a little bit of extra money who's in our system, or we can divert it maybe to anti-piracy issues if that's an issue in our culture, or you know, we can support music lessons for the next generation of musicians or instruments, or we can support symphony or music schools, whatever that might be. Right. And I mean, in the U.S., we haven't shown, especially in recent years, a marked interest in supporting the arts in that way. But what do you see coming down the road? Like, do you think that there's going to be a difference in how we handle that money going forward? You know, so far, the powers that be, and and by that, I mean, the people who collect the most from these organizations typically want the money. And they have not shown that much interest in having it put into cultural funds, so to speak. 
anti-piracy might be slightly different because they see the benefit of that themselves over time. And, you know, they've spent significant amounts of their own money on anti-piracy efforts. But I mean, that's sort of the difficult question. Will we ever get there? Will people finally coalesce around some sort of an idea that this is a good way to use money that we can't figure out who to send it to? You know, I mean, as I mentioned, typically it just increases what you pay out to everybody else. And and that can be done in one of two ways. And you realize in the end, it makes no difference. Both methods end up with the same result. One way to do it is to say, hey, we have $5 million we can't distribute. And we've tried, let's say, for five years. So we've already made a five-year effort to figure out how to get this money out the door. And we haven't. So let's take that $5 million against our expenses so that our admin fee is a lot lower and that everybody gets a bigger portion of the money that they actually earn. Right. Or I can say, we have this $5 million extra. We're going to just send it out. We'll keep our admin fee as, as it was supposed to be, you know, whatever the rate is, 6%, 5%, 10%, depending on the collecting society. And we'll just send everybody out a check for their relative share based on how much they receive. You know, that's a, that's an interesting, you know, philosophical decision that people within the collecting society have to have, you know, what's the most fair way of distributing this. And obviously the larger players love market share distributions because typically they're going to get the most of it. Right. It's gotten more complicated now because what we're also seeing is some of these larger companies direct license around the collecting societies. So the bulk of their repertoire and the bulk of the payments aren't even going through the society. They're going directly to them. And people will say, well, wait a minute, if they're doing that, why should they get any piece of the black box money or the undistributable money at a society? And the answer would be that the undistributable money, if it's bad data, is just as likely to be theirs as anybody else's. We don't know whose it is because of bad data. On the other hand, when it is an identifiable artist who doesn't claim, since they're identifiable, you'd know if they were one of those major company artists. And clearly they're not, because they would have been part of the direct deal around the society. Right. And in those situations, it, to me, it makes sense that those big companies who direct license around the society shouldn't be part of that distribution. Right. So to me, in, in that case, maybe what you do is you take that money against your admin fee, which means that everybody who is in the society and not direct licensing around it would get a slightly higher share. Right. Or slightly higher payout. Right. Well, it's a complicated issue, and we're going to just sort of keep an eye on it as we move forward. But John Simpson is a professor at American University, and I appreciate you very much. And thanks for being with us on The Future of What today. Oh, my pleasure.
That was You Can Stay But You Gotta Go by Quasi. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Wayne Milligan of TriStar Sports and Entertainment Group. Wayne, welcome to The Future of What? Thank you for having me, Portia. I'm so happy to have you. And I love having people in studio. It's so (laughs) much better to look somebody in the eye than just be on the phone. It's a wonderful studio. Oh, so nice. So I'm having you on today because we're talking about the unclaimed royalties situation, the black box, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to have you on because I wanted some good news stories. So, you know, the the good news of what happens when you actually follow the trail, you find the artist and you get to that pot of gold. So I like to talk about good news and I guess royalty claim stories that we have about our clients. TriStar is an entertainment accounting firm, which in the in the industry, we call them business management firms. And so we do everything from personal bill pay, taxes, you know, handle payroll. But my area specifically deals in royalties. And so we have featured artists, musicians, songwriters, publishers, all types of clients that receive royalties. So a lot of our royalties are contract-based, but we're also dealing with statutory royalties. So in the unclaimed royalty world, we really look at clients as how do they collect the royalties is based off of how they work. So if they're a featured artist, there's usually contractual royalties that come from a record company. There's songwriters and publishers that receive royalties from traditional performing rights organizations and also music publishers. And also we deal with musicians. And in musicians... In background vocalists, a lot of the the royalties are derived from union signatory agreements. And so they're members of SAG-AFTRA and members of the AFM, the American Federation of Musicians. And so as they play sessions and as their performances are captured and are subject to payment of residual, then those are different funds that are set up, you know, within the industry to pay them based off of how that master recording is being paid or is generating royalties. Also, we're dealing with sound exchange. Mm -hmm. Sound exchange and outside the United States, a number of neighboring rights collectives that do the same thing in their respective territories. We're dealing with a stream of royalties that is oftentimes statutory, and it's due from particular companies that own copyrights and then the artists that also perform on those copyrights as well. So it's a lot of different, very decentralized royalties. One of the, the main problems we have with royalties is it's so decentralized. It, right. Like I said, it's based off of how you work. So if you're a musician, you may not be a songwriter, so you're collecting only from one stream of revenue. But in this day and time, we're creating, we're writing songs and simultaneously creating master recordings. And so you may be a songwriter who is writing a song, collaborating with others, but you're also singing on your own demo recording. Well, those demos Oftentimes, because they're made in Pro Tools and Logic, those demos, the actual multi-track stems is what they call it, are being transferred to the producer, who oftentimes may be a writer on the song as well. Well, they're using those same multi-track stems to create the commercial master that's eventually going to be you know, recorded by the artist and released commercially. Right. And so, oftentimes, there's a vocal that's preserved on those original demo stems that gets used in the commercial master. One of my greatest success stories that we have for a client is we had a very successful songwriter who 
simultaneously recorded a vocal and wrote a song. And that song ended up getting upstreamed into being recorded by a major artist. Well, when it was released, the label copy, the actual official document that a record company oftentimes keeps to show who all performed, who all worked on that particular track, did not include this songwriter's name as a background vocalist. And so we had to go back when we took on the client and research, and we went back to her and to the manager to say, hey, is her vocal somewhere on this master? Because she oftentimes sang on the original demos. And so they went and listened to the track and went, well, yeah, we, we, we hear her vocal, you know, here it is. <laughs> it was so buried in the track, right. but it was still preserved. Right. And the producer and artist that eventually had or recorded that song, for whatever reason, did not reflect that she was actually a vocalist on it. Right. So we had to get the label, a major label, to change the label copy to reflect that she was a vocalist on it. It ended up being a, a six-figure recovery wow. for a songwriter. It was it was a massive hit. So <laughs> not 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 all recovery stories and success stories, you know, have that many zeros behind sure. it. But in this particular case, this one did. It was very exciting and to the point to where those are the stories that I love to go to a client and say, hey, we just recovered six figures worth of money for you. Yes. And because with songwriters, producers, a lot of times they don't necessarily have business managers. Right. But they have mortgages. They have mm -hmm. kids they want to put in college. They want to buy cars. They want to, you know, just like everybody else. And, you know, not, royalties are not just for people who are, you know, celebrity artists and, no. you know, big, big name producers. They're just average people just like us. And so they want to pay bills like the rest of us. Right. So I love those kind of success stories. Absolutely. Well, Wayne, I like that whole story that you just told us is so useful to this episode because it really shows the complexity that we're dealing Absolutely. with in the music industry. The importance of properly recording credits when a song is put together, but also the difficulty because exactly as you said, like nobody was negative in that right. whole story. Nobody wanted to leave that songwriter off. Right. It was just a human error. And there's so much human error that goes into this situation to create unclaimed royalties, you know, as a as a basic rule of our business. So I think that's a great story because you guys did figure it out. And and like you said, you know, nobody had a problem with it. The label put the copy on and then the, she was paid her royalties and it all worked out. Exactly. Which was terrific. But you know, that just every step of the process is so difficult. And I feel like it's funny because you know, new technologies keep coming online and I always go back to blockchain. Everybody's like, oh, blockchain's going to solve all the issues. And I'm like, blockchain may be a great technology, but it's not going to make people record the correct information correct. in the first place. And I just like, we got to keep hammering that over and over. You got to record the information correctly in the first place in order for people to get paid properly. Exactly. In our industry, you know, specifically to U.S. copyrights, there's a requirement under law that we have to register our copyrights in order to reflect who the authors are, who the claimants, the the people who own the copyrights. And one of the things that I always felt like we needed to improve is the registration process for sound recordings. Because when the registration process was put in place, you know, however many years back, I mean, we have a what they call a form SR. And it's a form we submit that says, you know, who the author, which is traditionally the recording artist is, and who the claimant is, which traditionally is the record company. But that's really all we list. Well, now, now that we have digital royalty streams that come from sound recordings, we also have statutory recipients of those. It's the artist, it's the copyright owner, 
but it's also the non-featured people. It's the musicians and the background vocalists. Right. Well, we need to have a central registration system that reflects who gets paid. Mm -hmm. And when you don't file a copyright in time and under the requirements under law, there are certain things that you miss out on. You can't Mm -hmm. get statutory damages. You can't get attorney's fees paid. Well, we should have those same types of requirements to make sure that everybody's getting paid correctly that's due a statutory royalty. And that's one of the things, and in the songwriting world, we have somewhat of a central database to do that through the performing rights organizations. And so here in the United States, between BMI, ASCAP, and CSAC, we go online and we can type in you know, and register songs online. We need to be able to do that as well on the sound recording level, but we also need to have a central database. Mm-hmm. The Music Modernization Act that just went into effect, I think as of January 1, now that we're focused on centralizing royalties for songwriters, we need to go to the next step mm-hmm. and be able to create a database that reflects who creates sound recordings, who creates songs, something that could eventually feed all of these other systems. Absolutely. And that's, it is so critical to get registrations correct for creators Mm -hmm. and to get that documentation pushed out because people have to get paid. And we have, I mean, there's legendary stories of suspense accounts and we just can't find people. Sure. And, And we get that. And that's one of the biggest reasons why we have the Music Modernization Act is because we had a lot of digital streaming services who just didn't know who to pay. I mean, United States is one of the few territories in the world where we have so much competition in providing services for intellectual property. Outside the United States, we have one central society oftentimes in these territories that are collecting either mechanical rights or performance rights. Mm -hmm. One single collective that's distributing neighboring rights royalties. And as much as I love free market capitalism Mm -hmm. here in the United States... In the royalty world, it's a problem. Yeah. And it's a problem that's been going on my entire career. Right. We've had multiple initiatives of trying to get some centralized. Common Works is one of the things many years ago to try to get, you know, one single way of registering songs throughout the world. But we've got to collectively get together and decide we have to have one single database that solves the metadata problem. This is something I'm sure you've heard of many times before. We have a metadata problem. Metadata is that data that's tied to a particular master recording that shows who all should be getting paid and who owns it, who created it. It has to be something that we accept as an industry. We've got to solve this problem. Absolutely. And on that note, Wayne Milligan, thank you so much for being with me today on The Future of My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Portia.
That was Multidimensional Spectrum by Taiwan Housing Project. You're listening to The Future of What? After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. Also, check out our short podcast series about Bratmobile's potty mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Steve Ambers of SoCan. Steve, welcome to The Future of What? Thank you. It's nice to talk to you. So we're going to talk a little bit about sort of the unclaimed royalties black box situation because that is a topic that comes and goes. It ebbs and flows out of the consciousness. You know, people talk about it and then they don't talk about it for a while. But I think it's important that we get it clear for people to understand exactly what, you know, now we're 10 plus years on in the streaming digital environment you know, where we're at with this notion of unclaimed royalties. Like, why are some royalties still unclaimed? What happens to that money, et cetera? And I thought, you know, you work at SOCAN, a huge collecting society in Canada, so you could help us out. Oh, definitely. I could say it's much different in other parts of the world than it is here in the U.S. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, that's completely true because they collect royalties totally differently and they also have performance royalties for radio play, for example. I mean, it's a whole other thing. Right, I mean, saying how, how they deal with black box, even in streaming. Yes, totally, yeah. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what SOCAN does? SOCAN collects, well, two things now. SOCAN's a, actually an MRO, I guess you would call it, as opposed to a PRO, because now with the merger with SODREC, we do collect mechanical royalties in addition to performance royalties. Mm, okay. With regards to performance royalties, SOCAN has a very high match rate, partially because SOCAN has the most ISRC data because of their investment in purchasing MediaNet. Mm. So since they supply more data when it comes to ISRCs because of that business than other PROs have access to. So I think we have a higher match rate than most PROs. And does SOCAN just collects for Canada, right? Yes. SOCAN collects just for Canada. SOCAN also has a business called DataClef, which SOCAN invested and developed a system to collect royalties. And for example, we are doing the back office for IPRS in India and for our new society, Duca Pro in the Caribbean and talking to many other societies about helping them collect in their territories. Wow which is separate, but so can that business is, is just Canada. And I'd say in the PRO world, pretty much only APRA and so can are the only ones that have, let's say, 100% market share in their territory when it comes to a PRO. Right. Now, I mean, just to give people who are listening sort of an idea, the PROs in the U.S. collect on a lot of, there's a, there are a lot of pieces of data, a lot of songs that are out there. Do you have a sense of what the volume that you guys are dealing with is in Canada? Just because I'm thinking there, I mean, there are just fewer people in Canada. Right. But on the other side, we collect for everyone in the world in Canada. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So we collect for, like, if you look at the US PROs, we collect for ASCAP, BMI, GMR, CSAC, AMR. I don't know if we have a reciprocal yet with the, the new PRO out of Florida, but every society in the world comes through us. When you talk about the U.S. societies, you know, ASCAP doesn't collect anything for BMI. So they're only collecting a limited amount from, well, actually, I'll, I'll take a step back. Some of the differences between Canada and the U.S. So we'll get a complete usage file from Spotify, and then we will match it and pay out everybody in the world based on that. 
in the U.S., the way it works is, let's say, using Spotify as an example, Spotify will pay out to the PROs based on their market share. Mm. And then the PROs will determine how they distribute that money to their members. And we're talking about mechanicals now. No, 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 no. Now we're talking about performance royalties. Oh, performance royalties. Okay. Right, 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 right. Okay. Way it works in mechanicals currently now, let's say Spotify, they would hire a company, let's say I think well, Spotify uses HFA, they give HFA the usage file, and then HFA identifies and pays it out. I mean, that will change January 1st of 21 with the MLC taking over that for the most part. And the, the onus would be on the MLC to collect the money and pay it out. I was going to say. Not on the service. Right. Not, not, not on the services. Currently, it's on the services. Right, right. Are they doing it by market share and not by the number of songs that get played or the exact songs that get played? Why do they do it by market share? That I'm not 100% sure why that method was selected for the U.S. That's like the only territory where that happens. Interesting. Like in Europe, what happens, Europe, it's... A little different. So all the eligible, let's say, societies, because there you have pan-European and a lot of people can direct license. It's a little bit different than the U.S. They will get usage files from, let's say, I'll keep using Spotify as an example, but all the services are, are the same. And then all the societies or people eligible to collect will then claim what is theirs and send an invoice back to Spotify to get paid for their actual usage in Europe. My God, <laughs> this is so complicated. So you get this money in. Yep. But as a collection society, you can't pay every cent of it out for a variety of reasons. So what we do, it's a little different than most societies. Our match rate, like unless you streaming, it's over 90%. And for the most part, we pay it all out to the ones that we can identify. Right. And then as things are identified, we will then make some adjustments and, and pay those out. But for the most part, we're, we're paying everything out. Mm -hmm. Societies do different things. We feel that's like the most fair. There's an incentive to try to match and pay everything out because we are a nonprofit. We're trying to pay everything out right. to our members. Other societies I know will hold the money for a couple of years. And if they can't identify it, they'll pay it out on market share. Or what they'll do is... They will reduce their admin fee. Right. So they'll apply that black box money to their admin fee. We're not a fan of that method because, in our opinion, they give you like a disincentive to identify things. Because mm -hmm. the bigger the black box you end up with, the lower your admin fee is, which doesn't is true reflection of how efficient you are as a society. Right. Right. Of course. Yeah. Not that people are doing that, but it, it, it could lead to that. Right. So what are some of the reasons that you have unclaimed royalties? Well, the number one, re I mean, I, to me, there's an easy solution that would eliminate most of the problem, but no one really wants to deal with this part of it. But the easiest solution is not release music until you have the copyright cleared. Oh, yeah. The split's cleared. Yeah. One of the biggest reasons is because so much music is released without copyrights cleared that they can't pay it out. Interesting. And it's more of an issue in certain genres of music than other genres. Like what? Hip-hop is probably the, the biggest one that doesn't have things cleared before it gets released. Mm -hmm. Percentage-wise, then I'd say pop. 
Whereas you have other genres like country and rock that it's pretty much all cleared before. Right. And cleared. And when you say cleared, it's actually cleared by the service that's going to play the music. That's what. Well, no, it's, it's more clear by the record label that they have all the copyright information before they're releasing the music. Okay. Because I'm just thinking there's a ton of music that gets played that doesn't necessarily go through record labels these days. I mean, you know, kids upload stuff to SoundCloud and I mean, there's all sorts of stuff out there. Correct. But, but, but theoretically, in, in that sense, that kid is the record label. Right. Okay. With that sense, yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. The record label should, should clear everything. Yeah. Who's ever controlling that master that's releasing the music should clear like, the copyright information before they release it. Right. Whether it's on SoundCloud or a- anywhere. Right. And I think that leads to a fundamental issue that we have in this whole situation, which is that a lot of times the people who are releasing the music don't understand or think that there won't be money attached to it. So they don't take it seriously at the creation point and say, like, we need to, you know, make sure our, everything is attributed properly. And there's all this software that's been coming online lately that helps people, you know, put in the credits and the data in the studio when they're recording stuff so that that problem doesn't happen in the future. But not everyone is using that. Well, it's bigger than that. I'll, I'll give you a real-life example before I joined SoCan. But it, it's a little more convoluted, and it's, I think it's more how music is made these days. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, you get a stem or something from wherever, especially, as, and this is, like I say, more in the hip-hop and pop where you have the issues where people will write a song and then they'll bring in a producer and he'll add elements. Mm. The people who wrote the song have agreed on the splits. Now you brought in this producer that added things to it. Right. Now, what is his cut and everyone else has to take less and that's where the problems lie in is that things are being done with people not in the room. Got it. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And then, so how it is, you know, even the new software and stuff, it doesn't really address those types of issues. So like the real life example, before I joined SoCan, I represented a lot of record labels and publishers. I represented Prospect Park Records, who bought the rights to a Azalea Banks album from Universal. And that album was released. And then Azalea wanted her co-writers to accept her control comp clause which is a whole nother issue which a lot of them which most of them did not and she wanted a certain percentage for being the singer which they would not give up so there was a dispute on the copyrights but meanwhile the song is out there getting played the song's out there and, and the album's out there getting split. got it billion streams there so then hundreds of millions of streams so then I actually got a call from Sony ATV, who represented one of the co-writers, asking about their money on the album. And I said, thank God it's you. You represent Azalea Banks. Tell me what the splits are. And we're more than happy to pay it out. And? <laughs> Internal emails from Sony ATV, they can't agree on the splits. Oh, my God. And during this time, Azalea has gone through many managers and attorneys, so we can't get, you know, we're not getting responses. I got gotcha. you. So when the, pub- <laughs> when, when, the, when the publishers can't agree on the splits... How do you expect a record label and or a streaming service to pay out? Right. You know, you're, you make an excellent point, which is, and of course, while this is going on, the song is is out there and getting played and right. getting streams and getting downloads and getting purchased and all the above. And how are you supposed to figure that out when it's not even figured out amongst the participants? Right. Yeah. And so that that's why, you know, once it's out there, sometimes there's less incentive to get the accurate split or you know once it becomes a hit then it becomes more contentious so i mean that's why like i said earlier on if the record label wouldn't release it you know until the splits are cleared a lot of these problems wouldn't exist 
Right. Yeah. No, I mean, that's an excellent point. That's, that's a really good point. And, and by the way, that's the law. Yeah. And that's super interesting, I think, for people, for listeners to understand is that, you know, this does happen all the time in the music industry because putting a record out there is often everybody's number one priority. I mean, when you have an artist out there that wants to get their music out there, right? label and people aren't saying no to that artist. Right, right. And, you know, they have tours planned and they have, you know, they artists have all sorts of things that they've got going on and they don't want to spend months haggling over details. Right. Yeah, I understand. Now what's changed in this age, whereas before streaming, all this was on the label. Right. And I mean, they did have a late fee settlement on that issue. But even there, I mean, I think, and I would love someone to do a study of what happens. But now, I mean, they're supposed to pay it out, the labels, after a certain amount of time, whether they have the splits or not. Like kind of what their black box is to the ones they can't identify. And what is getting paid out? What are the labels doing? Right. But what's changed is the onus has gone from the label to the streaming services. Mm. Because prior, no one's suing, well, before Tower Records or Walmart for buying CDs and not paying out the mechanicals. Right. But if, you know, the labels don't have the splits, the reason the services aren't paying out is because they don't have the splits, just like the label doesn't have the splits. So neither one's paying out. Right. Right. No, that's an important, that's an important point. So you mentioned at the very beginning of the interview that we do things differently here with our black box monies than they do in other countries. I know that in some other countries, they put it back into the system by, you know, creating like scholarship funds for artists and arts programs and stuff with that black box money. But we don't do that. And what is, how does SOCAN handle it? Well, SOCAN gets distributed. There's no cultural going for Canada. But I know one thing I can say, like one thing in Europe that was different. I mean, it's, it's changed now. Earlier on, I know a lot of the societies in Europe didn't even identify the long tail. Mm. Do you want to explain what that means for people who might not understand it? So basically, let's say 90% of the earnings from a lot of these streamings are going to come from like 10% of the work. So all, all the hits, all the popular music that you know. And the other 10% of the earnings are going to be represented by 90% of the works out there. All the DIY stuff, more obscure stuff. Well, that stuff is the uh, other works that's harder to identify. A lot of the society stuff just didn't even bother mm-hmm. and just paid out 100% of the money to that 90% they could identify. Got it. And that's another way, you know, theoretically, Black Rocks is, is being treated. Right. Got it. So it's the very second day of 2020 like here we are in this new year what do you see coming down the pike for this like do you see significant changes do you think there's going to be some technology that changes that helps this out or do you think that we're in just a a question of human error you know with humans involved sometimes you just we just muddle through to the best of our ability i don't see this as much a technology issue it's just a data issue because even like you say whether it's blockchain or whatever this technology is going to solve the problem if you don't have the information of what the splits are, doesn't matter what the technology is, it can't distribute the money. Hey, you can be on my next blockchain panel with me because that's what I've been saying all along too. It's You can have the best technology in the world if the people don't actually record the splits, then we don't have the information. You don't have the information. Right. It, it's not going to make a difference. Yeah. So it's more getting yeah. the information than the technology. What I'm going to find interesting, and I'll give you another example. I won't give names, but I'll give you an example. I had this very prolific artist songwriter that I used to represent. And I did an analysis. I took like 
a couple months of her Spotify earnings from her music publisher, which was one of the major music publishers, from her PRO, which was, okay, let's, I'll, I'll just say it was like, like let's say ASCAP, mm-hmm. and from her record label, which was different than her publisher. Mm-hmm. And compared the streams, I know the amounts are different, but the streams. And in this case, the stream count from the record label was the most. And all three were different stream counts. Mm. Now, the stream counts from the PRO and from the music publisher has to be higher than the stream count from the record label, which was the opposite. Wow. Because of the publisher and the PRO will have royalties from covers and the record label wouldn't. Right. Okay. So whether it's a karaoke version or a cover version, there's all kinds of other versions that are out there of the songs that the publishing side would collect and the record label wouldn't. So this is all like a data issue of how things are identified. And what I'm going to find interesting in a couple of years is when the MLC gets going and you're going to get these statements, whether they're monthly or quarterly from them on, this is how much streams you have from mechanicals. And then you're going to get your statement from your PRO saying, this is how much streams you had for performance. And the numbers are going to be different. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen. Right. Yeah. Well, (laughs) Steve Ambers of SOCAN, thank you so much for bringing up these questions and being with me today on The Future of What? My pleasure. Anytime.
That was The Black Table by Milagres. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Quasi, Taiwan Housing Project, Milagres, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at thefutureofwhatshow.com and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Clark Buckner at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center and is produced by Will Watts. I'm Portia Saban, president of the Music Business Association. See you next week. 